Can we open up our Bibles now to 1 Samuel? Uh, We have been um, out of Samuel for a few weeks now, and uh, I'm looking forward to to, uh, diving back into this book with you. Josh, thank you for serving us last week uh, in preaching. Um, I was uh, at Christmas weekend or week with my folks in Arizona, and so um, Josh, thank you for heralding a truth that we need to, to receive and walk in in hospitality. And so thank you for, for serving us in the word today. Well, we are going to be in chapter 13 this morning in, in Samuel. And maybe as a way to recalibrate ourselves back into this, this wonderful book, uh, I want to draw attention to two passages uh, as we do. And one is uh, one that we actually reflected on during Advent of is Hannah's song. Now, we, we connected that to Mary's song in Luke. And, and uh, if you remember Hannah's song, these, this prophetic song, these words that she, she gives in 1 Samuel chapter 2, after she, we get to know this woman who is barren, she has no children, she cries out to the Lord for a child, and God does give her a child, which is Samuel. He would become the prophet of the Lord. And she sings as she, she, God gives her this child and she rejoices in the Lord, uh, in his salvation. That there is this, this joy that flows from her heart to trust and rest in the Lord's might and salvation. And in his salvation, there's these divine reversals of human situations by his might. The, the lowly are lifted up, the proud are cast down, and we see Warnings like this in verse 7. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. For the wicked are are cut off, their their bows and weapons are broken. However, the the hungry and the humble, those who trust in him, God is going to lift them up and seat them them in royalty. This is God's work. And this is what he says, for not by might shall a man prevail. Let's just remember that phrase. This is going to be meaningful for us today. And he says in verse 10, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He gives strength to his king and exalts the horn of his anointed, or the Messiah. One of the things that is going on in this song is it's framing for us all that's going to unfold in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. What we see is, Human might is foolishness. All of God's people, and particularly his leaders, are called and invited to humbly come and trust in the might of God, their true king. And we're going to see today, will this question, Saul, this newly installed king, will he be the king of humble trust in the Lord and his word, the Lord as the true king of Israel, or... Will he rest in some other confidence, some other might other than God? So let's keep Hannah's song in view. And then also, if you've got your Bibles open, you can just kind of glance up to chapter 12. And here we see, after the official installation of Saul, some final sort of serious words come through instruction of Samuel. And we heard that there is from him, this sort of strict, explicit, yet gracious invitation from the Lord, from the prophet, for God's people to serve him only, to turn in trust in him with all their heart, 
to love him, to obey his words. And, and this warning, as we see here in verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your hearts, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so it is with these these words kind of hanging there, we pull into chapter 13. So let me pray for us as we, as we do that this morning. Lord, thank you for your, your word. Thank you that we can come to you in prayer, as we did earlier, Lord, this, this invitation to pray and to hear from you, that we sang to speak, oh Lord, all of this can happen because Jesus, you have given us a heart to hear, to receive, to believe, to pray and make our prayers acceptable. So we, we come this morning and we want, we want to hear these words and receive them into our heart to serve you faithfully with all our heart, to remember the great things you have done and to, to trust and obey. And so would you work upon our hearts, move upon us. If you don't move upon us, Lord, we will be left to ourselves. So we ask that you come and do that by your grace for us, for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So let's read these first verses in chapter 13. Now Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, and then we see something that's going to happen. Now, I just want to pause for a moment because maybe in your Bible it, it reads differently. Or you might have this footnote down at the bottom of something that's very different. Um, this was a common way in ancient literature to capture the king's tenure. And so this is kind of what's going on here. But there are commentary pages. I, there was a, you don't know how many I read leading up to this sermon, trying to explain some textual issues around this little verse. Things that were lost in ancient manuscript or what's going on. I think that the best suggested explanation is captured here in the ESV is that, is that Saul, from the time that he was anointed as king by Samuel to being fully installed kind of publicly, was one year. And then he reigns uh, for two years after this situation, which leads us up to our account, our story today. This is one of the reminders we need to hear. When there are difficult things or hard things that happen in a text like, like this one um, that is unclear, we don't, have to be, uh, we don't have to be shaken in our faith because the things that are most important and are, that are most needful for us are clear and we can have confidence in them. And that is particularly what God says in the gospel for us. So this doesn't have bearing on the gospel that we believe in. So let us be reminded about that. And so this, would ha- this is what happens. This is sadly a, a short-lived tenure of this king. This is how our story begins. So Saul chooses 3,000 men of Israel, verse 2. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet through all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. 
And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So, Saul chooses about 3,000 men from, from the people of Israel. Now, there's some speculation on what's going on here. But if we were, look back in chapter 11, Israel d- defeated the Ammonites. Remember that king, Nahash, his name meant serpent. And at that point, we are told that Saul mustered 300,000 soldiers from Israel, 30,000 from Judah, and now here we only have 3,000. Maybe this is, is some sort of like hubris on Saul's part. He's, it's like he's, he's assimilating some elite special force or something. We don't know. But he, he gives his, what we don't know yet from the text, Jonathan, which is his son. We'll find that out in verse 14 uh, or 15. And then he has 2004 himself. The rest of the soldiers he sends away to their home. And it is Jonathan who goes and defeats the Philistines at the garrison at Geba. Saul blows a trumpet, and everyone starts talking about how Saul defeated the Philistines at the garrison. Isn't that interesting? Saul is getting glory for what Jonathan just did. I don't know who managed the media during that time, but we've got a question kind of there around what, what's really going on. I mean, isn't this what Saul should have been doing as king himself? But this stirs a hornet's nest, and in contrast to this little 3,000 grouping, we see this in verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble... For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilead and all the people followed him trembling. This is how they are following King Saul. Now you might have picked up on this as we read a small statement Abraham was promised by God that his descendants would be blessed in a huge multitude like stars of the heavens, like sands on the seashore. And those descendants were promised in Genesis 22, they would defeat their enemies. And here we see this same reference, like the sand of the seashore. And yet it's not in regards to Abraham's descendants, it is Israel's enemies, it's as, if, it's as if his enemies are the ones being blessed. There's just some sort of like reversal or curse going on. The Philistines assemble. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, thousands of troops. This is only trouble. And what is the response? Hiding wherever they could find. Holes and caves and places where dead people are supposed to be put. In tombs. And Saul's in Gilgal and everyone, this is the status, trembling. They're trembling. This is a dire situation. Something has to be done. What, what is going to be done? Well, we are told this is at Gilgal. This is the place where Saul was anointed. And now they're there again. And this is what happens in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So let's recall an important 
command in chapter 10 at this moment. After Saul was anointed, he experienced several signs of confirmation. And this is what Samuel told Saul in chapter 10, verse 8. He told him this, Then go to before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you to, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, it's very likely that this has been more than seven days that it passed since this initial thing happened. So this could be a restatement of what Samuel had given, or this was a standard stock rule that was understood. The prophet would come, he would offer a sacrifice and establish guidance for God's people because he was the prophet of the Lord to give guidance to his people through the word of God. So either way, this was this is what we need to get. This was the command of God through the prophet for Saul to follow. And lingering in the background was also why Saul was anointed. They were told in 916 that he was going to save God's people from the hand of the Philistines. And remember, Saul was told that he was going to deal with situations at the Philistines' uh, garrison. Remember, he was told to do whatever his hands were fit to do, and he did nothing. And here now sets up what's going on. Saul is waiting. He's supposed to be waiting for Samuel to come, offer sacrifice. And we just need to kind of feel the, the tension here for Saul. Things are getting heavy. I mean, everyone is scared, trembling, hiding wherever they could find in holes and caves and tombs. Day one passes, day two passes, scouts are coming in, not giving good updates about what's happening with the Philistines. Some of his soldiers start packing their bags and they start leaving where they are and heading home. It begins with maybe a few and then larger groups start heading out. Day five, day six, more are departing. Where is Samuel? More intel comes in about the Philistines, big bad technology army. Day seven, he's looking on the horizon, still no Samuel. We got to do something. Something needs to be done, and Saul does. Verse nine. So Saul said, "Bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offering." And he offered the burnt offering. And then verse ten. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet and greet him. Now, I think this was still probably, and commentators agree, this is probably still day seven. Maybe it's the end of the day. And Samuel arrives. Now, I don't know what that felt like for Saul going out to meet and greet. I mean, our meet and greet just a moment ago was pretty happy. There was a lot of smiles. I heard laughter. I don't know if Samuel was, was ready to be greeted by a happy, like, bear hug from Saul or if there was, like, deer in headlights for Saul. But this is what Samuel says in verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, 
when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me and Gilgal at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Those startling four words, what have you done? You see, Saul's waiting was not just to have Samuel present with him like like a parent on the sideline at a sporting event just sort of cheerleading him on. He was there to provide sacrifice unto the Lord and give God's absolute instructions to the king, the word that the king was supposed to live under. And all Saul could do in this moment is offer excuses. I mean, look at the list. My army was deserting me. Samuel, um, and Samuel, you came late? Like, like somehow this is your fault for me doing this? The Philistines were so powerful, and, and I was, it's like I was forced to do it, almost against my will. Samuel's reply, verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. So Saul's foolish decision, his foolishness was his act of disregarding God's word. This is what we just saw repeated again and again in chapter 12. To act wickedly or evil was to turn from trust in the Lord's word and to disobey and reject God's word. So though this was an error that he offered a priestly sacrifice, the main sin was that he didn't look to trust in and obey the word of the Lord, which was to come from the prophet. So when the pressure was on, the heat was on, Saul trusted in his own plan and his own word. Dale Davis Davis writes this, Saul's was an act of insubordination, a failure to submit to Yahweh, Yahweh's word through the prophet. By his actions, Saul confessed that certain emergencies rendered Yahweh's word unnecessary. When the chips were down, kingship could function on its own. On his own terms. This was the truth. True obedience will not be seen when things are just easy. But it was when the pressure was on, when the weight and the gravity was really heavy, he gave himself license to do what he wanted. Isn't this true of our own hearts? When the pressure is on is when true obedience is found. When the pressure and weight in Saul's Saul's accusing of, from Samuel was that he was foolish. In that moment, it is if Saul disregarded God himself. This was a heart issue that was going on in Saul. Psalm 14 tells us, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It always begins in our heart. It always begins in the heart. From the outside, Certain choices could look very reasonable, and it could look like what is being chosen is maybe right or smart. But in the end, it is a heart issue that relates to God himself. 
And the fool is the one who rejects God and, like Saul, takes matters into our own hands to live and make decisions as if God is not part of the equation. And this is not a safe place to be. It was not a safe one for Saul. His, he thought it was. It was a solution in his mind. It was security in his mind. But in the end, he was not trusting and fearing the Lord. He was fearing the Philistines. Or, or could there have been a deeper issue of his of fear of people in itself? As those people were scattering away, this fear of man or people pleasing at play for him is possible. Proverbs 29.25 tells us, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear men, and it is a trap. It is a snare for us. But those who trust in the Lord, there is safety. This This is true for us. When fear of man grips our hearts, we do things we wouldn't otherwise do. And that is a dangerous place. Saul was ensnared. Let's look back at those, those haunting words in verse 11 from, from, Sam, from Samuel. What have you done? Now the first readers of this text, and maybe, maybe your mind went to this, this situation would link us to something else in biblical history. It would draw a line straight to the garden, a startling line. These are the words of Genesis 3 in the garden when Adam and Eve had sinned. God comes and finds his beloved Adam and Eve, and he comes to Eve and asks the very same thing in verse 13 of chapter 3. What is this that you done. And then following in chapter 4, after Cain killed Abel, God comes to him and says these words, what have you done? In both these situations, man was taking authority into their own hands. That was which was not theirs. And rejecting God's benevolent and good rule. And in the same way, we see blaming going on in there. The woman is, is blamed by, by uh, Adam. The woman made me do it. Or she says, the serpent made me do it. Saul has the audacity to, to say and even bring an assumption of accusations to, to Samuel. Blame a disregard of God's ways. Adam and Eve failed to keep the command of the Lord as did Saul. And this is This is the sin here that we are seeing. The pride present in the garden, pride present here for Saul, and the foolishness of that pride that leads to destruction. Pride always leads to disaster. I watched one of those true story movies recently regarding NASA and the space program. It followed somebody's life. It was, it was awesome. And it was amazing to see the achievements of NASA, but also looming in the background was, was also the losses that NASA has encountered. And it reminded me of the shuttle that was Challenger in 1986. And when just refreshed about the, the details around that, it's just astounding and troubling. Just 73 seconds after liftoff, the entire shuttle 
and the crew were lost to an explosion. And it was found that it was a result of the unexpected cold temperatures that day and the integrity of some O-rings on the rocket boosters, which are just this circular rubber uh, seals that had failed. So for a shuttle with over 2.5 million parts, it was these O-rings that came down to being the problem. The the cold temperature made these O-rings non-malleable. They cracked, fuel leaked out, and there was an explosion. This is the heartbreaking reality. The investigation that followed that, the probing, found that the O-rings showed catastrophic flaws and issues years prior. Engineers warned about them, and yet they were disregarded. On the very day of liftoff, the cold temperatures were warned by staff. The managers disregard those, and disaster took place. Those leaders, even with warnings given, were disregarded, and they went ahead and did it anyways. And the consequences that were overlooked, that were looked at as small things, became disastrous things. This is the way pride moves into the heart. Seems small, but this was not a small thing for Saul. It was catastrophic. This is why Samuel tells him in verse 13, if Saul would have kept God's word, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, if we just take a moment and kind of step back from the situation, I mean, there, there seems to be, at least I felt this, like, what, is this, is this an overreaction for Samuel? I mean, like, was this really that bad? I mean, the decision seemed reasonable and legitimate under all that pressure, all the fear, all the concern. He just had to do something, right? Well, it was in relationship to the seriousness of what, he was doing. And that was no small thing. There should not be sympathy here for us, for him, because he rejected God's word. Israel was to live by every word that came from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3. This was to be their life. The king was to be the one who hid God's word in his heart and did not turn from left to the right. Deuteronomy 17. That was the, the rule of the king. And this was God's standards that we heard in chapter 12 just before this. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, and if you, both you and the King who reigns over you, will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. So Saul's error was that he did not trust the Lord. And that sin had consequences. So kingship for Saul would end with him. So disheartening. There would not be a continuing kingdom through him to his son, which we know now is Jonathan. Samuel is saying if he would have been faithful to the Lord's command, there would be an eternal or a perpetual kingdom, everlasting kingdom for him. But here embedded in this is a foreshadowing of hope. Of another king, not Saul, and through his offspring there would be a continual forever 
kingdom. And how will this happen? We come to this well-known statement. The Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart. So in the thick of all this disaster, God is the one who's going to initiate some good for his people. So the Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart. Now in our English sort of use, I could say something like Hillary is, is after my own heart, meaning she could have similar interests or likes as me. But here in the Hebrew, it has the sense of, of choice or God's choosing, not the, the quality of a person. So, two ways to kind of hear this. Is the future king, will this one have the heart for God? Or is this a king after the Lord's heart, meaning God's choosing? I think that is what the text is saying. Andrew Reed says this, and hence the focus in verse 14 is on the Lord who is searching for someone who fits his desire or his disposition for a king. That is his will. The king of God's willing, not Israel's, will be a man after his heart. And he will be one to faithfully worship and love and obey the Lord in all circumstances. In contrast, Saul was the king. God said, you have chosen for yourself. Chapter, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 18. This is one of the things we should glean. This is what people get when they make kings or gods for themselves. Failures. Failures. God is not... They, those things will only fail us. Our own kings or our own gods that we try to look to to save us. They will fail us. But here's the beauty in all of this, saints. God is not only holy, but he's good and merciful, and he's going to provide a king of his choosing for his beloved people because he knows we can't do it. He knows we can't do it. So we're left with this anticipation of what's to come later in our story. But next we hear in verse 16, the situation gets worse. Verse 15, and, and Samuel rose and went to Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him, they stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, to the land of Shaul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. So what's going on in here? Well, earlier we saw that there was 3,000 soldiers. Now we're down to 600 soldiers, and there's raiding parties all surrounding the northwest and east of Israel. And observe this, where Samuel went and where Saul went. Different directions. It's as if the physical departure of Samuel for representing the word of God is leaving any leadership or direction that Saul was going to look to. And then we read, that's not enough, verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. 
But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshares, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is how our chapter ends. It seems like, once again, such a despairing situation. Failed leaders, enemies surrounding Israel, oppressing them. And Israel doesn't even have a blacksmith present in their, in their nation to sharpen their farming tools. And they have to pay their enemies to do that very thing, let alone being able to fashion weapons for themselves. This is dismal little army. Everyone's fearful in hiding. And we've got two guns, and the only ones that have them are Jonathan and Saul. This is a bad situation. And the king is now without a very, the very essential thing that he needed to succeed from the beginning, God's word through the prophet leading his heart in God's people. No weapons. No might. Fearful. Enemies poised to destroy. And a need for a king who loves and trusts God and his word. And he's not there. But God. But God, saints. God has shown his faithfulness to his people in spite of their failings again and again. So let's, let's hear Hannah's song and remember Chapter 2, verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, for not by might shall a man prevail. What kind of might? What kind of might will they prevail through? Well, it's going to be through God's grace and God's mercy. Though Saul is rejected, the Lord will provide another king after his heart, and that king and his choosing, it, it is foreshadowing a king to come, which will be King David. But David would be a faithful king, but the test of perfect obedience and faithfulness would not be successful, even with him. Or any of Israel's kings following, except one that would come. Who would be this king after God's heart? It would be Jesus. You see, the king that God sought was the king that was given to complete trust in the Lord and obedience to God's word perfectly. The only kind of king that would be able to do this is the one that would be worthy to lead his people and his kingdom. This is what Jesus came to do, saints. Jesus, in him, we have a king and a savior who redeemed those who have broken his commands, unfaithful to his commands, like Adam, like a Saul, who can be asked those very same questions. What, what have you done? And we're found guilty. We're found guilty with no excuses because we have each opted to do our own thing foolishly according to God's will. And so Saul forfeited his right as a king by his foolish, dis, foolishness and disobedience as we have it as well in our foolishness and disobedience. But this is what Jesus has done, saints. Jesus 
in our place on the cross, took our rejection for our foolishness and our disobedience. And in his life, he didn't just simply die for our sins on the cross. His life was one lived in perfect obedience, unwavering heart for God's righteousness and his word. And it's through faith in him and trust in him, he secures eternal access through his kingship. So in contrast to Saul, in the face of danger and threats of men, he did not fear men or even death itself, but embraced it and said, thy will be done. That is the good news we have in the gospel, saints. This is what Romans speaks of. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by, as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the one man's disobedience was in Adam, which leads to all of us being in the same way, fallen from uh, the Lord like Saul, and yet in one man's obedience, referring to Jesus and his perfect righteousness and life and king, many will be made righteous. So by faith in the perfect king, Jesus, who in perfect righteousness kept all of God's commands, we receive his perfect obedience as accounted to us by faith. So that warning that we see in verse 25 in chapter 12, we will be swept away without faithfulness. How are we not swept away or cut off? Because we put our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ, and his perfect life is counted as ours, and it's in that that we are not cut off. So not only are we secure in his perfect record, he gives us new hearts by the Spirit to thou love and obey him, to love his commandments and to follow him. We need to take this story also as a warning for our lives against foolishness. I mean, it's easy at times for us to kind of wag our head at Saul, but, but when the stakes are high, when the pressure is on, when the temptation is hot upon us, we can so easily insert ourselves to try to fix our solution, uh, fix our situation in our own mind what the solution is. If that is a parenting or if that is work or if that is a relationship, or even in that moment we're hearing the enemy whisper like Adam and Eve did to them, God is not enough. His ways aren't perfect. He's withholding his good from you. His protection is not upon you. You need something else. Do something else on your own accord. Choose your own way, what is right and good and what is beautiful, rather than trusting in Jesus. And saints, we can trust him. We can look to him rather to our own way. We turn to Jesus who gives us his word, who is the word, and we can know how to please him. And he gives us his spirit so that we could have strength and courage to follow when all of that fear and all of that temptation crashes in. The temptation is not too much because we can stand in Jesus who stood for us. And in our standing in him, in our looking to him, in our following of him, we are being conformed to the likeness of our Savior, King Jesus. Praise God. 
for our King, Jesus. We should thank God that we can come to him in all of our failings this week and know that our worship is not made acceptable. Our, our access to his presence is not given based on what you have done, your record, your account, but faith upon the one who kept it perfectly for you. That is good news, saints. And then we can also know and have confidence that we go through this week and all the temptations that come and face us. We have his spirit, his word upon our hearts, and we can follow our Savior faithfully in obedience. Praise God for our King Jesus. Let us look to him today. Lord, thank you. Thank you for coming and being a better king, a perfect king where a soul failed. God, you had a plan that a king after your heart, a chosen son would be raised up who would faithfully follow and obey. And your people we receive all the benefits of your kingdom, of your perfect, perfect obedience by faith in you, Jesus. So the record we hold and that, stand, that gives us access that we stand before you is not our own, it is in your Son. Let us rest confidently in that today, Lord. If we're here this morning and it just seems like the condemnation and the, the failings that we have had over the course of this week or past year looms over us. Lord, let us turn that to faith in the righteousness of our King. All the guilt and all the shame that was present can be cast upon you, Jesus. And Lord, let us, let us walk in courage and your strength today, knowing that you're at work to conform us to the likeness of you, Jesus. So fill our hearts with your word that we would know how to love and to obey and follow you because it's in that that there is blessing and good and joy and our trust in you. It is in that that we are safe. Thank you, King Jesus. Amen.